Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast on the world of deals, mergers, and acquisitions. I'm your host, Alex Sherman. Thank you for listening. This week's Deal of the Week is a story Bloomberg initially broke way back in March when we said Stitch Fix was considering an IPO later this year. Well, it's true. Stitch Fix last week publicly filed for its initial public offering. Bloomberg IPO reporter Alex Barinka joins us from Dallas, her hometown of Dallas, to tell us about Stitch Fix and its business. She helped break that initial story back in March. But I don't just want to limit our discussion today to Stitch Fix. Instead, I'd like to broaden the conversation to how and when startups decide to file IPOs. Because the financial shape of companies that file for IPOs, particularly tech companies, changes with the times and the era. And Stitch Fix stands starkly against the grain on current trends. And for that, I'm also joined by Shira Ovide in studio to help guide us through what we're seeing now. So Alex and Shira, welcome back to Deal of the Week. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me. Uh, Alex, let's start with you. What is Stitch Fix? How does it make money? And what are people saying might be its initial public valuation? So Stitch Fix is uh, a company that basically does online personal shopping. You go online, you pick uh, what types of clothes you want, they send you a box, and then you decide what you want to keep and pay for and what you want to send back. It, It seems like kind of a niche product, but I was actually surprised when the filing did hit uh, earlier this month. They actually have revenue of $977 million in the year ending July 29th. They have posted Posted uh, net income, so they've been profitable in years past, and you know it seems like right now they are actually, as you said, kind of breaking the mold of what a typical public company looks like. So this will definitely be one that we are paying attention to as they go forward because it's not like a lot of the tech companies or the uh, the tech-ish, the squishy tech-enabled consumer or food or what insert industry here companies that we've seen actually hit the public markets in the past few years. So uh, similar to Blue Apron, this company sounds a little like, uh, I guess, a tech company, but also like a retail company. I mean, I'm assuming that the bankers that are going to run the roadshow for this are not going to pitch this company as a retail company because the multiple would be lower. Do we have any indication on on what the sales pitch to investors is going to be? So if you look at the S1, that's the the big prospectus, that actually gives you some flavor of the narrative that this company is pushing. And it is definitely leaning tech. I think Shira pointed out last week when the filing came out that they mentioned data and data analytics more than 60 times in that big, thick document there. And it, it gets to kind of this big question that the likes of Stitch Fix and, as you mentioned, Blue Apron and a lot of these other companies, I think back to like Etsy, the kind of artisan goods seller platform. It's this question of, is this a retail business or does the technology actually make it more valuable? For venture capitalists who are getting into these companies earlier, they're betting on this tech that these are, you know, we like to use the the fun word in that industry, the disruptors, the ones who are going to upend kind of the, the old incumbents in this company for Stitch Fix being the retailers. But there's become this question now of, are they actually changing the industry? Are they actually worth more just because they have you know, a pretty online presence or they use a lot of data? Looking at uh, Stitch Fix specifically, it does seem like, and my gut kind of tells me that this one, the data-driven kind of piece for them could actually give them a competitive advantage that would lead them to be valued 
closer to uh, like an e-commerce company. So e-commerce companies on a sales basis for this year are basically trading at four and a half times sales. Uh, retail companies are valued at closer to 1.4 times sales, uh, estimated sales for 2017. So you can see the discrepancy there, but it does seem like at least with the scale that this company has and the actual value add that they're providing compared to some of the department stores or run-of-the-mill brick-and-mortar retailers, that they might be able to swing that loftier valuation. And again, sales about a billion dollars, as you said. Alex, you alluded to Shira's column. Shira, you wrote a fantastic column for Bloomberg Gadfly last week about Stitch Fix and sort of this very issue. How does Stitch Fix compare to other recent tech companies that have gone public? I mean, basically, at this point, when I see a company like Stitch Fix that has raised relatively little venture capital financing, only about $42.5 million, has significant revenue, is cash flow positive, has significant cash on the balance sheet. When I see numbers like that, positive numbers on a cash flow statement, it's stunning because it's just so unusual these days to see a company, even one going public, a tech company going public, that is actually generating significant cash and, you know, doesn't need the money, basically. So give us an example of a company or two that has gone public recently that does not fit that mold. I mean, literally every tech company, but of course, the poster child of cash-burning tech startups going public is Snapchat, which I am not joking. When I saw the S1 in February that Snapchat filed, I had to kind of rub my eyes to make sure that I was looking at the cash flow numbers correctly because they're burning more cash than they are generating in revenue. It was something like a dollar fourteen of burned cash for every Meaning dollar. Meaning they're eating of revenue. into their financing. They're eating into their financing. That's correct. And I, I'm not sure I had seen a company that was burning through its cash at that kind of a rate at the same time it was going public. So there are a lot of positive numbers for Stitch Fix. One one note here that you point out in your column, which I think is a, is a good one, maybe for its story, and we can touch on this just for a second. Full disclosure here, my wife used Stitch Fix for a while uh, and falls right into this category about what I'm about to tell you. Very intrigued by the product at first, loved it at first, soured on it as the months went by because in her case... The way Stitch Fix works, as Alex alluded to it, they sort of have a personal stylist who thinks they know what clothes you'll like. And as the months went by, I think my wife felt like they just were getting it wrong. And so she's sort of stopped. That makes me question the data science element to this. Because it seems like in some cases, and maybe the evidence plays out on this from a broad perspective, if people are not using the product as much six months down the road, maybe the science is flawed? I mean, these are fair questions, right? So uh, Stitch Fix has, I think, several thousand of these personal stylists, which if you think about it, you know, they have two million plus customers. So it's not like you're getting that personalized attention. But look, anything related to big data, data science, artificial intelligence, these are all tech buzzwords that people love to see. And look, some of the data science is kind of mumbo jumbo and not really even worth the paper it's written on. So we'll see what happens, right? We don't really know exactly churn rates and, and, and other kinds of metrics around Stitch Fix of how long people stick with it. One metric they did mention in the IPO document was that people who start 
Stitch Fix, they tend to spend less in year two with the service than they do in year one, which is kind of a worrying sign, right? So maybe people kind of wean themselves off of Stitch Fix. They start to do more shopping themselves. They get bored. They feel like it's not it doesn't know them very well as your wife experienced. I mean, who knows what the reasons are, but those are not necessarily trends you want to see that people are spending less the longer they're with a service. To Shira's point, when I think back to Snap, when I think back to Blue Apron, uh, one thing that did catch my eye in the Stitch Fix filing is they do talk about uh, the fact that their continued growth depends on attracting new clients and they intend to increase their marketing spend to continue to grow the business. So that's kind of the big red flag for me because for both Snap and especially Blue Apron, these companies that end up being uh, very dependent on basically marketing and for some of these retail consumer retail companies, basically giving away the product for free, uh, that falls into the marketing budget. That's where the flags start ringing. And if I'm an investor who's showing up to these roadshow meetings, that's probably one of the first questions out of my mouth. Although just to Stitch Fix's credit, they have been very efficient with, they have not spent a lot of money on marketing to date relative to their revenue. And it's just part and parcel of this company is really running itself like a professionally managed grown-up company, not like one of these money is free forever cash burning startups. Is Stitch Fix profitable? I believe they are barely operating income uh, profitable in the most recent period. They are ca- they are generating cash flow that they were in the most recent period. All right. So these are some really interesting numbers. This is from a study out of the University of Florida. I want to just sort of talk about the context around what Shiro was alluding to about how Stitch Fix stands out as not your typical company that IPOs. I'm looking at a column here, percentage profitable. In 1999 and 2000, this is of the number of IPOs. In other words, the number of IPOs in that particular year. So there were 371 companes that IPO'd in 1999. These are venture-backed tech venture-backed IPOs. Venture-backed tech IPOs, I should say. Venture-backed tech IPOs. 371 in 1999, 261 in 2000. Obviously, that was right before the tech bubble burst. of those companies were profitable in each of those years. In 2001, when the bubble burst, the number of venture-backed tech IPOs dropped to 23. The percent of those that were profitable jumped up to 30%. That number creeped up higher, higher and higher until 2006, when of the 48 venture-backed tech IPOs that year, 50% of them were profitable. In 2007... We saw a downtick of the 75 that went public, 29% were profitable. So it seems as though the evidence indicates that companies were starting to get more and more confident as the economy was doing better, where they could go public, not profitable anymore, and there was appetite to sort of jump on the bandwagon and maybe buy a lottery ticket in some of these companies. Then, of course, what happened in 2008? We all know the financial crisis hit. Only six tech VC-backed companies IPO'd that year. In 2009, 14. In 2010, 33 as the economy started to recover. What percentage of those companies in those years were profitable? 67% in 2008, 71% in 2009, 64% in 2010. So what does that show? It shows that the companies going public had to be better businesses. The only way they were going to get people to invest in them is if they were solid businesses when they went public. What has happened since? 
In 2013, of the 43 VC-backed tech companies that, that went public, 28% were back down there. 2014, 17%. 2015 and 2016, 25%. We don't have the numbers yet for 2017, but Shira, correct me if I'm wrong, we think it'll be in that ballpark again. I, yeah, if, if not lower. Should I be worried as an investor that the numbers here indicate we are on the path for the third time to hit some sort of bubble here where we're due for a reset? Yes, I, I think it is definitely worrying that the quality of at least tech companies going public is deteriorating if you look at their finances. This is all part and parcel of the kind of frothy market we've had the last several years in venture capital, where there's lots of money going into venture capital funds, uh, and that means that there's lots of money going into tech startups. And the consequence of that is you get bigger bets, right? There is no way a company like Uber could have taken off in the venture capital funding market of, say, 2009. There's simply wasn't enough money available to fund a company like that, like Uber, that is burning cash on this mission to become this gigantic global company touching every country and anything where there's, you know, connecting to drivers or riders. By the way, I, I should point out, it didn't always, uh, it hasn't always been like this. From 1980 to 1995, the number of VC-backed tech companies that went public that were profitable never dropped below 65%. And the average was probably about 80%, looking at these numbers, 75 to 80% of companies that were profitable at the time. So this is a somewhat recent phenomenon. Why has this happened? It's, it's again, I think it all goes back to just the amount of capital available for startups. And as a consequence, what we've, what we've seen is that startups are taking longer to go public. The, the the median age of a tech company going public has started to creep up to 10 plus years. Um, so they're getting older, they're getting, by and large, bigger, um, and they're just kind of riskier. They're, they're generally faster growing and burning more cash. So, you know, the consequence of that is you probably get more gigantic winners of the kind of maybe Uber variety, but it also means you have these kind of cash flaymats that could potentially end in you know, death. Yeah. And, and one thing I would add that I think is an important other side to the story is you have to think about what's going on in public markets too, right? We are now at the tail end of what, an eight-year bull market. Folks are so desperate to kind of find those returns that they're willing to take these riskier bets on these, uh, you know, less financially sound companies that are going public. If you, there's been a few hiccups. If you think to, in 2016, there was some kind of a risk aversion out in the market, but folks are willing to snap up these shares. And right now, at this moment, you know, we're kind of sitting on a, a supply uh, constraint because the companies are afraid to test those private market valuations. But almost every single deal that I see come out of the gate here has good demand. Most of them are oversubscribed. Folks are buying in. The aftermarket trading on the first few days is, is doing well. It's the long-term performance that starts to get hinky because uh, some of these questions about 
profitability, some of these questions about long-term sustainability of the business model, about unit economics at some of these tech-enabled kind of consumery companies. Those questions uh, folks start to wrap their head around. But, you know, frankly, a lot of the investors who are getting in at IPO have already cut and run at that point and basically made the returns for the year. So you have this public market dynamic too, where people in investors on in the public markets are willing to take these shares. You cannot take a company public if there's nobody on the other side willing to buy the stock. So Shira, if I'm listening to this podcast and I'm interested in looking at companies that are IPOing and thinking whether or not I should invest in them, go back and look at some of the the lottery tickets that have paid off. If I'm if I'm calling every one of these a lottery ticket, meaning a company that's going public, some are less lottery than others. What is the right metric or metrics that I should be looking at as an investor, in your opinion? I mean, obviously, if you knew this, you would be a gazillionaire <laughs> for sure, yes. but you do know more than the average person. What should I be looking at that Facebook had, that Google had, that Netflix had, that maybe some of these other ones that have struggled, Snap, Blue Apron, Twitter, haven't had? You are right in calling particularly tech companies that go public, it is a lottery ticket that when Snapchat went public, I did an analysis. I looked back at companies, tech companies that had gone public, and it was literally a coin flip. It was basically 50-50, the ones that had performed better than their IPO price and the ones that had declined from their IPO price. So you're really, you know, you're rolling the dice on a young company without a proven track record. And that's the appeal and the danger of investing in tech companies going public. Look, Unit economics matter. So you can look at, a, at the growth rate of a company like Snapchat or like Blue Apron and ask yourself, how sustainable is this? What are they having to do in order to you know, generate that kind of revenue growth? Are they spending tons of money on, on marketing as Blue Apron did? Are they competing in a market against deeply very rich uh, competitors as Snapchat is in an advertising market that's dominated by Facebook and Google. So, you know, these basic questions of any public company, they matter and you can't just look at the growth rate. By the way, just for some context, Snap is down 39% year to date. And that was a that was a, a company that went public this year. Blue Apron now latest down uh, wow, I mean, Blue Apron is down so much that I'm not even pulling it up on the screen here. Okay, let me let me let me review this here. It's close to fifty percent. <laughs> yeah. Blue Apron is down about fifty yeah. percent on the year. But but you look at Atlassian, which was basically bootstrapped company that listed back in uh, I want to say in late 2015. Right, we did we did a episode uh, yeah. about Atlassian buying Trello that you guys should listen to. Atlassian, they had the cash to make that acquisition. They've been continuing to fund their growth. They were bootstrapped. They had the unit economics down. They're up 133% since that December 9th, 2015 IPO. So the outliers exist out there. Uh, you just kind of have to have a bit of, a, of a luck and a keen financial eye to find them. Look, and the thing about Atlassian that's also true of Stitch Fix is those are both professionally managed companies. Atlassian was also uh, very nicely profitable. What does that mean when you say professionally managed? They are run by grown-ups. They are not burning cash. Atlassian basically took no venture capital money until it was 
quite close to an IPO and then uh, took some money. And it was just secondary. Right. It was just secondary. You know, these are companies that finance themselves through the cash generated by their own businesses. They are old fashioned companies by the today's standards of Silicon Valley startup. And it's it's funny because because now when I look at the this kind of nexus, right, the late funding rounds and these companies that we consider pre IPO, there's been a lot of actually positioning going on lately to kind of ease the concerns of investors who are getting in in these private rounds. We saw a lot of hedge funds and mutual funds getting into these pre IPO rounds from you know basically the heyday in 2014, 2015. Uh, last week or two weeks ago when I was in San Francisco, a lot of the folks uh, in my world are telling me a lot of those tourists, a lot of that tourist money is gone. Yes, it's been replaced by the soft banks of the world, but some of these typical investors that were looking for pre-IPO allocation by getting in in these private rounds, which inflated valuations, they've taken a step back. And now you have you know Uber's new CEO coming out and basically trying to make people feel better about a potential exit down the road saying, look, we want to get public by 2019. You have Spotify coming in agreeing to do a convert that rewards investors the longer they wait to IPO. So obviously exits on the mind. It feels like the pendulum is starting to swing back uh, the other way toward a bit more risk aversion, toward a bit more sensitivity to profitability. But it hasn't fully swung back that direction just yet. And you wonder if the only thing that will fully make it swing back based on the numbers I shared 10 minutes ago is for some sort of mega crash to happen. That might be the thing we're waiting for that will forcibly make the funds that have been throwing money at these companies and particularly the public market decide, you know what? I better step back here because it's just not worth my, yeah. my my time or money to do this. It'll take a, a big boom to kind of upset the uh, eternal optimism that is rampant in Silicon Valley. By the way, one final point here, since both my guests are women today, Stitch Fix, a rarity among Silicon Valley companies in that the CEO and founder is a woman, Katrina Lake. And by the way, she's only 34 years old. So when you say professional management run by grownups, you don't actually need to be old. Right. You just need to be, you know, not Uber or Zenefits or the several other companies. Grown-ups in spirit. Grown-ups in spirit, exactly. Alex Marinka, our Bloomberg's IPO reporter, and Shira Ovide, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist that covers the tech industry. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks. Thank you. That'll do it for this week's episode of Deal of the Week. Hope you enjoyed that. Remember, you can catch all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts or Bloomberg.com or the Bloomberg Terminal or really any app you use to listen to podcasts. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. It helps people find us. Also, follow me on Twitter at Sherman4949. Shira, where can people find you on Twitter? I am at Shira Oviday. And Alex? At Alex Barinka. Sarah Patterson is our producer. See you next week. Mm-hmm.